Hi, I'm Mel Todd Wood. At CD Media, we've decided never to have a paywall on any of our sites. I hate those. But we have to make money, so we do have advertisements. But some people don't like ads. So what can you do? You can sign up for our no-ad subscription. It's a few bucks a month. You go to the top of any of our sites and sign up for the subscription, and you get access to all of our websites, all of the news from around the world. This includes our Eastern European, Israeli, Balkan sites. It includes armedforces.press. It includes all the U.S. papers that we've opened, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan.press, and the, those that are yet to come in the pipeline, which will be opening soon. So you get all this access to fantastic news from around the world with no ads, no display ads, no pop-up ads. I think you'll love it. Please check us out. It helps support CD media, independent media, and basically confronting the propaganda that's being put out by the corporate media. Thank you. Now let's get to our guest. Today on American Conversations, we have a nurse from Fresno, California, Michelle Gershman. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Uh, Michelle is a nurse. Uh, she's been a nurse for almost seven years. And her mom, who was 65 years of age, was admitted to St. Agnes's Hospital in Fresno. And the instructions given to the hospital were not to give her mother remdesivir. And they, they overrode the family. And Michelle was not able to get in to be an advocate physically for her mother at the time. She found out after the fact that she was given remdesivir and she wanted it to stop. And so Michelle lost her mom. And Michelle, we're very sorry about your mom. Condolences to you and your family for, for that horrible situation. So tell us what happened. Your, your mom was 65. She was in good health. And then what happened? Um, yes. Yeah, so my mom was. And what year, what year was this? This was November, 2021. Okay. Um, and she was pretty healthy in general. And in November I caught COVID, um, November 5th and my mom brought some soup over, um, when I was sick. And then like three days later, she became positive with COVID. And then, so by the time I was feeling better, she was feeling really sick. So I kept coming over to her house and I would sit with her and give her water and vitamins and um, just try to take care of her at home. And she seemed like she was getting better, but um, she wasn't really getting that much better, but she, um, you know, she was just trying to rest and um, trying to drink fluids and things like that. And then on day 10, I decided to check her oxygen level because she had a cough and she was pale and it, her oxygen was um, 84, 85%. And so I told her, you need to get some oxygen. You need to go to the hospital. And she didn't want to go, but um, her friend had called right then and said, please take her to the hospital. I can't stand losing the thought of losing my best friend after losing my son she had also lost her son um, two years prior to the same COVID protocols. Um, but she wanted me to take her to the hospital. So after my mom heard her best friend say that, she um, decided to go. So um, I took her to St. Agnes. She walked in there. They put her on two liters of oxygen and her oxygen went from 85% to 92%. And so I said, okay, good. I felt like I put her in the right place. And, um, um, I told her, you just need oxygen. I said, when I dropped her off, make sure you tell them you do not want remdesivir. 
and you don't want to go on a ventilator. You just need oxygen and some fluids. And so she said, okay. And she walked in there. And then and you I talked a lot at that point in time, you were not allowed to accompany your mother inside the hospital. Correct. Correct. They said they, there's no visitors and thinking about it now, if they had told my mom by admitting you to the hospital, you're going to have absolutely no visitors. We're going to throw you in a back room to suffocate and die. We're going to bombard your body with all these medications and stick needles in you all day long um, and wake you up while you're sleeping. My mom was said, hell no, I'm going home. I'll take my chances. But they didn't tell her anything like that. They just they just brought her in. Did you know that that was happening in the hospitals in Fresno at that time since you're since you are a nurse? Uh, no, I didn't know they would be so evil, robotic, barbaric. No, I did not know they were going to treat my mom like that. So you weren't you weren't working at the hospital you were working at. You were not in the COVID unit, the ICU or the ER at that time. Not at this time, because when COVID started around March of 2020, I worked on the COVID floor for about six months and the tele floor. And then in November, somewhere around there of 2020, I transferred to the postpartum unit. So by November 2020, it, COVID had not gotten that bad yet. And so with the, the entire year that I was on postpartum with the babies, I'm not really sure what was happening on the COVID floor anymore. Because I had okay. already transferred. All right, and, and when this happened to your mom, th this this was November twenty twenty one, right? Correct. Okay, yep. so 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 <clears throat> your mom gets in there. You're talking to her by phone. Are you talking to anybody else that's on the floor at the time? The head nurse at the nursing station, the doctor. No, um, not really, because she was in the emergency room, and I didn't. I knew they're probably busy, so I was talking to my mom. She was coherent. I felt like she was okay. She was just getting oxygen. My mom was a very bold redhead woman that I knew she, you know, she's loud and she'll, she'll tell them. And if I tell her, make sure you don't take this medication, she'll tell them. And, um, they, so I, I was just talking to her. I wasn't really talking to the doctor. And then, um, but your so mother she, confirmed to you that she did tell them that she did not correct. want to put on a ventilator, did not yes. want to put on remdesivir. Yes, because I asked her later that night on the 15th, I said, did you tell them you do not want remdesivir? She said, yes, I told them. And they looked at me like I'm crazy. I said, well, that's okay. They can look at you like you're crazy, but don't let them give it to you. Right. So she said, okay. And then she went to sleep that night, I'm assuming. Um, and then I found out when I read the medical records um, that on November 16th at two in the morning, um, they gave her remdesivir. So, so she, she may have been asleep, asleep and she, they may Absolutely. have woken they, and they may have woken her up and she's in a doze and they're just Absolutely. giving her a shot and she's thinking it's another IV change or something like that. Yes, exactly. And then the next day she said, everybody in here is wearing masks. It's really hard to know what anybody's talking about. Um, and so if they did tell her we're giving you remdesivir and she's, you know, half asleep, she probably didn't understand. And so, um, you know, that was the first dose. And so for when the next Pardon me for interrupting, Michelle. When did you find out that your mom was had been given remdesivir? At what point? On day four, because the first three days, my mom was responding to my calls. She was answering the phone. She was um, texting me back. She said, oh, I'm feeling better. And um, I thought she was getting better. I was like, OK, I put her in the right place. They're going to help her and send her home. And then on day four, um, she stopped answering my calls. And she wasn't texting me back. 
and I started panicking because I know my mom, um, I talked to her every day um, for the entire last year that I, you know, she'd come over every day. She was really involved with my kids. And um, so she didn't answer my call. So I started panicking and I called at 2 p.m. and I got a hold of the doctor and I said, um, why isn't she answering my calls? And the doctor said, um, oh, she has COVID. She's tired. And I said, well, what are you giving her? And then she named off these medications and she said remdesivir. And I said, why are you giving her that? She told you not to give that to her. And she said, oh, it's COVID protocol. Um, That's what we're giving everybody with COVID. And I said, do not give her another dose of that. She told you not to give it to her. And she said, well, she got her last dose today. And so I knew after that. So your mom had four or five. Yeah, five. She had had five by this point. Is is that the norm that people are given five days? Right. So they're five days. And then if they aren't better, they give them another five days, which by that point, they're dead. So (laughs) pretty much. And um, so... I didn't know that much about remdesivir yet. I just know that my mom does not tolerate medications very well at all. And I had been hearing a couple of things about, you know, this antiviral that's not really helping. And so I told her, don't take it, not really realizing that it's straight poison. And so that night when I got off the phone with the doctor, um, my heart sank. I felt disgusted. I felt like Um, I knew I'm going to lose my mom. She's going to die because they gave her that medication. They poisoned her. And so the next 10 days was complete um, agony for me because I kept calling and I wanted to get information on my mom. And she was not really, she was declining. Um, She would answer my calls, but wouldn't be able to talk very much because she was short of breath. And then, um, and then also sleeping more. So, and not really texting me back anymore. And so the next, um, couple of days, I kept calling to get information about her. And everybody I talked to, they would say, oh, she's getting better. You know, we're checking on her. Her oxygen's fine. Um, It was so robotic that they would just say, she's getting better. They kept saying, oh, she'll be home in a couple days. Um, You know, she's resting. And then if they didn't say that, they would just not want to give me information. They they just treated me like I was a burden. Um, Like they don't want me asking about my mother. Um, and none of them, I feel like none of them have any compassion. They, they have no sense of put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Like if that were your mother, you would be trying to do anything to save her life. And I would have done anything for my mother. And I was begging to come in every day, especially after day four. I'm like, she needs me there. Um, I can watch her oxygen. I can watch, you know, help her with the machines, um, you know, bring her things, or have my husband send me things upstairs because I'm like, I can stay in the room. I don't have to leave. So I don't expose anybody else. And um, every time I asked, I asked every single day, I kept bugging them. I asked to talk to the house supervisor and they didn't want to send me to the house soup. They said, no, you need to go through the floor supervisor first. And every time I asked, they said, no, I'm sorry, it's policy. We don't allow any visitors. And I, I kept saying, my mom can die like she needs me there and and they did not care. So eventually you were allowed to come in, but only for a short period of time. Correct. Um, that was towards the end. Yeah. So they have this weird thing with their, their visitor policy. 
if the patient gets to the point where they there's no return that they're going to die, they finally will let you in. So I don't know why they have to wait so long, because if they had let me in in the beginning, I could have potentially saved her life. I would have advocated for her and um, I would have been able to monitor her machines. I told them I'm an RN. I worked the COVID floor. I can help her. And if I'm there, I can improve your patient outcomes. And they did not care. So they got her to the point of no return. Um, she had lost a bunch of weight and she was not eating anymore and um, just pretty much almost bed bound. And they called me on November 27th and they said, the doctor called me and said, well, your mom doesn't want to go on a ventilator. So, you know, this is it. We can't maintain her oxygen with the machines that she's on. So we're going to, um, do you want to put her on comfort care? Meaning you're going to allow her to pass, um, you know, and I said, um, yes, can I come? I'll, I'll be right there. And he said, yes. Do you want us to give her something before you come? And I said, no, I'll be right there. And so um, because I know my mom just does not do well with medicine. She never has. And so I'm like, don't give her more stuff. Like she needs to just be able to uh, recover, even though I know she was going to die. I'm like, don't give her anything. And um, I got there in five minutes. I called my brother on the way there. And I said, this is it. You need to come to the hospital. And so um, I drove there and it, I was, I got there so fast. And then I got to the front desk clerk and then they had to screen me for COVID. They're asking me all these questions, like, have I traveled? And they wanted my negative COVID test, which I happened to have from my work. Thank God. And um, then they, it took a good like 10 minutes just to get through the screening process. And then they wanted to make sure I had an N95 mask and all that, which I brought one with me. And they, they wanted to like approve it. And I said, I wear this one at work. It fits me. I've already been fitted. Like, what's the big deal? So finally, 10 minutes go by another, you know, so now it's like 15 minutes since I got the call. And then I, um, I go upstairs. And when I open the door, my I could see my mom behind the respiratory therapist, but she couldn't see me and not right away. And she looked terrified. Her eyes were like so big. She was like afraid of the respiratory therapist switching these masks on her face. And um, she just looked like, like, I don't know, a lost little child. And so um, finally, I walked to the foot of her bed. And when she saw me, her entire body relaxed. Like she had this look like, thank God you're here. And she like teared up. And she finally was just able to like, like take a breath of fresh air. And so I would say, oh, my God, mom, what did they do to you? And she had lost like 20 pounds just from the two weeks of being there. And um, she looked really just like this is going to be it. Um, they had basically let her just lay in a back room and deteriorate. And so, um, you had, know, had they, had they uh, gotten her out of bed at all? Do you know, during that two week period when she was in the hospital? Yes, they had a physical therapist coming in and um, what to, to massage her legs or her or to get her out of bed and to, to walk her down the hall. They got her out of bed, especially the first week and a half. Um, they were getting her up and walking her around the bed to use the commode. Um, but you can tell in the notes as each day goes by, it's less and less time that she was able to tolerate getting out of bed. So by like the 24th, um, November 24th. She, it said, unable to tolerate patient DSATs, um, feels very weak. And so um, P 
PT physical therapy said, we're going to sign her off until she's more stable. And so, um, so they so, stopped at that point. Yes. And so she, she declined. So the first few days she was getting up. Okay. Walking around in the room. And then after, you know, in the last week or so, she wasn't able to really get up, but they had a bedside commode next to her bed and the nurses are charting patient up to the commode patient, um, you know, a nurse providing like peri care, which is saying she's, they're helping her with like bathroom needs, like cleaning her and stuff like that. And I'm like, you guys didn't do anything. Like she was laying in her own mess when I got there and um, just looked dirty and just, and then um, she had told me. You mentioned to me that when you walked in, in, in the pre-interview, you mentioned to me that your mom had dried blood that was on her lips that hadn't been wiped mm -hmm. off by the nurse who was present in the room. Right. Yes. So on November 25th, my mom texted me and said, my, my chest hurts. Um, and I've been coughing up blood. And I said, does your nurse know? She said, I don't know. And so I called the nurse. I couldn't get a hold of her. So then I called the clerk. I was like, I don't know who needs to get this, like who I need to call, but you need to get this message to the doctor. My mom's coughing up blood. Stop giving her blood thinners. And, um, they, so they said, okay, we'll relay the message. And that was like 7.45 in the morning. And on the medical records, they gave her a blood thinner at 8 a.m. that same morning. So they didn't get the message across in time. So that, mean, that, means that, that means that the doctor didn't get that message because it's a doctor that, has, that is only able to prescribe the blood thinners or cancel them. Correct. But the, if nurses, the, nurse, the nurses don't have any juice to do that in the hospital. But if the nurse is notified that the patient is bleeding internally, possibly bleeding, she should question that and say, I'm not going to give her the blood thinner. I'm going to follow up with the doctor right. and see if the doctor still wants her to have this. You, you don't have to give it at 8 a.m. Like because it's ordered, like you have to ask the doctor or you have to, you know, assess for bleeding. That's just it's. That's like nursing 101. If somebody's bleeding, you don't want to give them a blood thinner. And so that was on the 25th, of the morning of the 25th. And when I got there on the morning of the 27th, she had caked blood on her lips that somebody should have cleaned up for her. It was caked on there, meaning it was on there for two or three days. So nobody's providing any basic hygiene. Um, they just, they literally just left her in a back room to die. And then um, was she sharing a room with anyone else. She was not. And that's another thing I didn't mention in the pre-interview. Um, her husband was also sick and I dropped him off too. And um, he was treated the exact same way. And he was about six doors down from my mom. And in during this two weeks, I said, can you put them in the same room? Their husband and wife, if you're not going to let me in, you should let them at least be in the same room so they can maybe support each other and um, not be isolated. And they said, oh, we don't share rooms on this floor. But I found out later, yes, they do. There was a father and a son that shared a room on this floor in St. Agnes at the same time as my mom and Rod, her husband. So so they, they can do it. They just didn't want to. Michelle, I'm so sorry. Thank you. What, what and then your, your mother passed away on what day? November 29th at about midnight um, or it was like 1230 at night. And what, what happened to, to um, your, your stepfather? Rod, he passed away um, 
106 hours later after my mom. And so that was another thing too. I was advocating for my mom 100%. I was advocating for Rod um, 50% because his daughter is also a nurse. And so I knew that she was checking up on him and advocating for him. And so I was trying to really, like, I knew that somebody had him, had his back. And so I, I was focusing on my mom. So when my mom passed away, um, I I told them, as I had been talking to people on the phone, I said, I, I want to file a complaint. I want to, um, like, talk about how ridiculous this policy is. And so my mom passed away and I got a call the next day from someone at the hospital um, as part of the ethics committee. And she said, um, yeah, I heard you had a complaint about the policy and I'm here to tell you um, that the policy um, is in place because of COVID and I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can really do about it. And I said, okay, well, what is your policy on when a patient is desatting? Isn't a nurse supposed to go in there and help put the mask back on and help the patient bring up their oxygen? And if it's not coming up, you're supposed to take further measures and help them so that they don't die. I said, what's your policy on your call lights being inaccessible? Aren't the patients supposed to have call lights within their reach at all times? Because these are two things that they failed with my mom. And I said, and what's your policy on um, putting people in restraints? You have to call a family member. My mom was placed in restraints and I was never notified. And why was she even in restraints? Because if you had sedated a patient enough to intubate them, to shove a steel tube down their throat, you should have them sedated enough that they're not fighting you. So you won't need to restrain them. And she was just like dumbfounded. She didn't know how to respond. And so what, I told what her. Did, what did she say to you? What did this hospital worker say to you? She said, I'm very sorry. I'm going to follow up on your mom's case because um, this is a horrible thing to happen to her. Um, she said, I can't really tell you what um, disciplinary actions will take place, but I'm going to assure that I'm going to follow up. And I said, okay, she was probably the first person there that actually seemed like she gave one care about my experience. Because up until this point, everybody there was so robotic and did not did not care. And well, they're dismissive. They're not robotic. They're dismissive. Yeah, that's true. Okay. What what happened to to Ron? To Ron? Did they, did so they put I, him on? Did they put him, your stepfather on remdesivir? Did they try to they put did. him on the ventilator? They, yes, yes, they did. And they kept telling him from the moment he went in there. They said you really need to go on a ventilator because your breathing is really bad, um, and you know, it's going to help your lungs recover. And he really was unsure. So he kept saying um, that he kept asking me and my, his friend, and we both said, no, don't go on a ventilator. Just you'll be okay. And um, they, but they were kind of coercing him the, the whole time. He did not end up on a ventilator. He, um, he but, was they just, gave him, but they gave him room. They, gave him, they did. Did, yes. did he give them permission to, to, to take, I don't think so, because he he called me a couple times and he said, I don't even know what they're giving me. They just come in here and give me medications and leave. Nobody tells me anything. This is worse than prison. I've never been treated this bad in my life. He's telling me all this stuff. And so um, they probably just gave him medications and didn't even tell him what it was, what it's for. So when when my mom passed away in this, I spoke to this ethics committee and told her the story about my mom. 
she said, do you have anything else? And I said, yes, her husband is in room 675. Um, and you better make sure that he's getting all the care that he needs. If, you know, if he's treated anything the way, like how my mom was, he's going to die too. And that's not right. He's in there suffering. I'm like, his wife just died. And when they went in and told him your wife died, they just went in. They said, oh, your wife died. Sorry. And then they walk out and he was just left in there to cry devastated like sick and devastated and so how old was your mom 65 how old was your father your stepfather uh, 68 all right so yeah. um i'm sorry i'm terribly sorry i'm terribly thank sorry thank you that, i i think you, i think i'm out of tears i mean <laughs> i um i ne have never fought so hard for anything in my entire life the way i fought for my mother did you collect all of her medical records? Do you have all, yes. the, all from all the different portals that are in the hospital? Because I, I know there's sometimes, yeah. you know, three or four portals for the records in hospitals. But do you have all the records? Yes, I do. I have both of their records, my mom and Rod. Are you planning on doing anything legally? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think you're in contact with Susanna. Um, so she's been really helpful with helping me get, um, some legal action with this. Yeah. I'm not going to give up. They should not have done that to my mother. And I mean, I do my own holistic therapy too, and I've seen miracles happen. I've seen a lot of people improve in their health. And, um, so knowing that there's another way to, you know, heal the body, um, it, it breaks my heart. So I became a holistic practitioner because I wanted to, that's my passion, my dream. But in order to get to the, the point where I was certified to do that, I had to become an RN or a doctor or acupuncturist or something licensed in the medical field. So I'm like, okay, I'll be an RN. And that's crazy. And so I never really planned on actually becoming a registered nurse, like as I was growing up, but I wanted to do something holistic. So now, now that I am experiencing this and I'm able to read these medical records and I understand and I know how the hospital runs, I'm like, this is why I became a nurse because they treated my mom so bad. I know everything they did wrong because I work in the, you know, backstage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, um, finally, let me, I know let me ask you about St. St. Agnes's hospital. Okay. Uh, I take it as a Catholic hospital. Or in, in in paper only, maybe? Yeah, correct. Okay. So is it for-profit or, or uh, non-profit? Um, I believe it's non-profit. Is that just on paper? Yes. All right. I, I so, think so. Were you aware at the time <laughs> that if a patient was given remdesivir, that the hospital would make money off of giving a patient, you know, five days of remdesivir, or if it were extended 10 days for the second round of remdesivir did you know that there was a money exchange with hospitals at the time i don't think so i think i realized that a little bit after she passed away all right were you were you aware at the at the time that uh doctors and that hospitals made money off of ventilators putting patients on ventilators mm, no i think that this this all kind of came out um after she passed away, I knew that there's corruption and there's something really weird going on, like with I, the fact that they only give remdesivir and this protocol is like a one size fits all. And that's not realistic for any 
and that's not realistic for healthcare. So no, I don't think I realized how much money they were making. Um, did you did you realize that when your mother went in that 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 the hospital quote unquote protocol was going to usurp your authority as your mother's healthcare proxy? Absolutely not, because I I thought well I'm an RN and I'll be able to communicate with the doctors and we'll come up with a plan and um, no I did not ever think that they were going to kill her. But but you thought that you 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 thought as a family that when you said no remdesivir that Correct. that was the end of the topic because you as a nurse in the family advocating even though over the phone and then eventually were allowed in when when her demise was imminent but still you believe that you, that you were in control and because it raises the question and this is for the audience to think about if you have healthcare if you have uh, hospital administrators and staff saying, no, this is our protocol. What happens to those in a family unit who have the health proxy legally? Because how can a hospital, how can a hospital override the health proxy? Because then it basically makes the health proxy moot. And that doesn't seem right. It's not right. And I don't know how they're getting away with that. I think they are getting away with it, though. I think they're saying this is protocol and we're going to do it, whether you tell us to or not. Did they ever mention to you that the protocol was in place at St. Agnes because of the emergency use at? Um, she, the doctor just said this is COVID protocol, so that's why we're doing it. They cold? Did, not did, it very, did he say it to you very coldly? Yes, Definitely. And the person from the ethics department said it to you, this, you know, they're going to look into it, but you know, their job is to sound as if they're compassionate. Keep that in mind. They still yes. work at the hospital knowing that the protocol is not being followed. Right. But when she called me. I mean, that the protocol is being followed. I'm sorry. Yes. And when she called me to talk about the protocol about no visitors, she was cold. She said, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I know a lot of families don't like it, but that's our protocol. We're not allowing family members in because of COVID. And I said, okay, what's your protocol on having your call lights being accessible at all times? Because you guys are not following protocol. Once I started asking her these questions, she started listening to me and then she was more heartfelt. But at first I think she was just trying to satisfy her, her checklist. Like, oh, this girl has a complaint about the visiting policy. Let me call her and tell her the policy. And then I kind did of you, turned you it ask, around. Did you ask her about why, uh, why did the hospital uh, supersede your family command not to give your mother remdesivir? Yes. So when and I what told, did she, what did she say about that? Um, the well, that was the doctor that I asked. I I'm sorry, the ethics committee lady. Um, I didn't ask her that. Um, I pretty much just told her the what happened to my mom. The doctor is the one who I said, why did you give that to her? She told you not to. And she said, well, it's COVID protocol. And I said, don't give her that anymore. She doesn't want that. And then she who's, said, who's, you, who's the doctor that was assigned to your mother? Dr. Rezepor, R-E-Z-E-P-O-O-R. And the first name? Um, I can I can find it. I have it in the medical records. Um, is this is a man or a woman? A woman. I have it in here. 
Do you remember the name of the person who called you who was the, from the ethics department? Um, no, I don't. And I think um, my I was so stressed that I just feel like my brain just like I couldn't retain people's names. And um, I just I don't I don't know. I was like in fight or flight mode, but I can find her name. I know that's her last name. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember her first name at the moment. But St. Agnes should have a record of me calling. So um, I can try to get a hold of that. Michelle, thank you for sharing this story. It's so sad. It's so tragic. And I'm so sorry for your loss and, and you know, for your brother and you and your children, you know, lo losing your mom, their grandmother. I mean, it, and, and also, you know, your stepdad. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's a tragic story, tragic story. And, and, and I hope you, I hope you see justice. Thank you. I hope you see justice. Uh, and people need to be on the alert that if they go into St. Agnes's Hospital in Fresno, they need to double check that the family's demands are absolutely met. I mean, who would have thought that to, to go to the hospital, you have to ask them, you know, do I have a right to make a decision medically? Yeah, they're taking the rights away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's happening all over the country. All over yeah. the country. And I didn't want to drop her off that day or both of them, but I was trying to think if I can get some oxygen, that's what they need. They'll be okay. They just need some at home oxygen. But I thought I can't really provide that. I don't know where I'm going to get oxygen for both of them. And then they, you know, eventually agreed to go. And, but they both were not that sick. They just needed some supplemental oxygen and maybe some fluids. Um, so then after they got there, they bombarded their bodies with medications and poked them. And then eventually they both ended up on the BiPAP, the big oxygen machine that blows um, a lot of oxygen down their throats and it dries them out. And um, they're not able to really eat very well because they have to remove it to try to eat and it's uncomfortable. So it's like too much for your body. It's too much work. Those, 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 those oxygen boxes that they have in many of the hospitals and many of the rehab stations, a lot of them are not even healthy. Yeah, that's, I've, that's I've heard that And those big boxes that are in the hospitals are not necessarily healthy. Oxygen. Right. It's better to be on a tank. Too, yeah, exactly. But um, one more thing. Um, last night I was reading through her records, and I remember when I did work on the COVID unit, um, you would have a patient come in. Um, and then their oxygen needs would keep increasing. They would have an x-ray when they got to the hospital and their lungs would be clear. And then they'd put them on some oxygen. And then it seems like the protocol was give them to severe. And then the people continue to need increasing oxygen to meet their needs. And then after a few days, they take another x-ray because their shortness of breath has increased. And then that x-ray shows fiberglass in the lungs. So from their first x-ray that's clear, when they've already had COVID for a couple of days because they were at home and they got sick enough to come in, it's clear. Then they, they go another couple of days in the hospital getting these treatments, like remdesivir. Now they have fiberglass in their lungs. I just kind of came up with this last night because I was reading my mom's records. When she got there on the 15th, her chest x-ray was clear. It said no acute disease process. Everything's clear. And then day five, which was after the first set of remdesivir, she needs a lot more oxygen at this point. And then they did another x-ray and her lungs had fiberglass in her lungs. 
and it said COVID pneumonia. So they're trying to make it sound like COVID is putting this fiberglass in your lungs. But my mom had already had COVID for 10 days at home. So she would have already had fiberglass in her lungs if it was COVID causing that because it would have been able to set in in that time. So that fiberglass didn't show up until she was in the hospital for about five days. So I'm like, okay, if somebody can look into this a little bit more, is remdesivir causing fiberglass in the lungs? Because every time a chest x-ray is performed and they see that fiberglass, they say COVID pneumonia because it, they see that, that right. trait. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if somebody can really research that a little bit more. To me, that, that opened my eyes um, because I, I think that that's proof right there. If their lungs were, well, clear, you have to, there has to be, you know, there has to be more than, than just noticing it, but that's, it's something that ne definitely needs to be investigated. Did you have an yeah. autopsy on your mother? No, no, they didn't. Um, in the last 24 hours, all of her organs failed. So, um, uh, and then they said it's COVID on the death certificate. They said she died of COVID, but I don't believe that. I think she was killed by neglectful medical personnel. So. Michelle, thank you for sharing your story. It's a very tragic story. And I'm so sorry that you lost your mom and your stepfather. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we'll be talking to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much.